I immediately returned to the Palmer House, telling my wife we should leave the city next morning, and said to her that if she had any more purchases to make, she should attend to it at once, as certain of the stores closed early. For the next hour I was busy collecting my various purchases about the city, and taking them to the depot to place in the large trunk. And at not later than 6.30 Hatch was again at the depot, and stated that the conductor had taken the children in charge before he left the train. He then left me, agreeing to meet me early next morning at the hotel to learn if the children arrived all right. I then returned at once to the Palmer house and ate dinner. Without delay I went to Mrs. Pittisell's hotel and assisted her in packing her trunk and having it taken to the train before eight o'clock, the larger trunk going upon the same train. But Mrs. Pittisell and Desi remarked to me later that they saw that trunk upon their arrival at Prescott early next morning and a day later the customs officer at Odensburg, during his inspection, came across the shovel Hatch had insisted in placing in it at Detroit, remarking that he did not know how, but that it was dutiable on account of being new. If this trunk had been at the Vincent Street House, there would have been no necessity of one's going to the neighbors to borrow a spade with which to conceal the evidence of the terrible crime committed there. I returned to the Palmer House before Mrs. Pittisell had started, no later than 8.15 p.m., and during the evening aided my wife in her preparations for the next day's journey, and only left the hotel before taking the train next morning at 8 o'clock, for about two minutes, to step across the street and ascertain if the girls had met Miss Williams, as was reasonable to suppose, as no telegram was there. Hatch was waiting for me at the hotel, and said he should wait one or two days in Toronto to get his mail and buy some dutiable goods to take across the border. I did no smuggling while upon this trip, nor was I even absent from my hotel any evening or night, save when accompanied by my wife to some place of amusement, nor did I ever leave my hotel before 8.30 a.m., save upon this last morning. Thus it will be seen that this is not an important statement, for according to a witness named Rogers, if his testimony at the inquest at Toronto is correctly reported, he saw the two children at 1 p.m. Thursday, and that early next morning a spade that had been previously borrowed had been returned to him. In an informal talk upon this subject, Mr. Rogers has several times stated that this occurred quite early before working hours. The hackneyed expression that a spade is a spade may be true, but I feel that it poorly expresses the full value and significance of this particular article. Again, Mr. Rogers states that, sometime, in one published account some days later, the keys were left with me. I fully believe that the children met their death and were buried during the night, Thursday, October 25th. The spade returned before eight o'clock, for Hatch was at that time at the hotel, that during the day their clothes were slowly burned. And this, while I was journeying towards Prescott, Canada, a railroad trip of about eight hours, and where I registered at the Imperial Hotel not later than 4.30 p.m. that day. It may be asked how at this late date I can fully remember what occurred upon one certain Saturday, nearly a year previous to the writing of these pages, to distinguish it from the preceding day or any other day that is less important. 
Upon first hearing of the children's death, I was no more in a position to be positive in regard to this particular day than any other, until after thinking of the matter for hours and days together, as I believe only a man can force himself to think when he feels that perhaps his life depends upon such exertion. I arranged the facts in my mind in something like the following order. Being first sure, from some written memoranda, that I arrived in Toronto upon Thursday, October 18th. Upon the next day, which was Friday, I was sure that no purchases had been made, save the fur garment referred to, because this took up the entire morning, and our ride occurred the same day, which fact was firmly impressed upon my mind by remembering that the livery conveyance came to the Walker house. This could not have occurred on any other day, as next afternoon we were going to Niagara, and at all later dates we were at the Palmer House. I also remember that the second purchases at the first store, that of the storm coats, were made upon the day following our previous purchase, this being further strengthened and impressed upon my mind by remembering that Upon my return from Niagara the day following these purchases, a delay had occurred of several hours at Hamilton. The weather being such as to require it, I went to the baggage car, and after considerable conversation with the baggage man, was allowed to open our trunk for this garment. This date brought to my mind that the compass had been used while at Niagara, showing that that too was brought upon the day previous. This in its turn made me think that the purchase of the compass had occurred while passing from one furnishing store to another, looking for the special grade of underwear I wished, and which was bought later in the day, showing me clearly that at least a dozen other calls had been made at different other establishments for a like purpose, and which must of necessity have occurred prior to the purchase which ended my search. My suit of clothes was promised to be delivered to me upon the following Tuesday, if possible, and upon Wednesday at the latest, and I was required to call once in the meantime to have them fitted. If instead of Saturday I had been measured Monday, and told to call the next day to be fitted, they could not have been promised to me upon Tuesday, and so on in regard to the other visits made after this day, until I became so thoroughly convinced that I have not yet verified them by tracing the several stores, not knowing their names. But I fully believe that the order books and delivery slips of at least three responsible establishments will show that I must have been transacting business in their stores at the very hours when it had been sworn I was in remote parts of the city, paying friendly visits to the owner and neighbor of the Vincent Street House. From there, the remainder of my journey was by private conveyance, hired for that purpose, and through a blinding snowstorm. My pen cannot adequately portray the meeting with my aged parents, nor, were it possible, would I allow it to do so for publication. Suffice it to say that I came to them as one from the dead, they for years having considered me as such until I had written them a few days before, that after embracing them, as I looked into their dear faces once more, my eyes grew dim with the tears kindly sent to shut out for the moment the signs of added years I knew my uncalled-for silence of the past seven years had done much to unnecessarily increase. For the next two days I tried to feel that I was a boy again, and when I could go away by myself for a few minutes, I would wander from room to room, 
taking up or passing my hands lovingly over each familiar object, opening each cupboard and drawer with the same freedom I would have used twenty years before. Here I found some letters written to my mother when I was a boy, and later as a young man, then as a physician, giving her careful directions regarding her health, then the letter written the day before my supposed death, all bearing evidence of the many times she had sorrowfully read them. There I also found toys that years before had seemed so precious to me, and old garments carefully laid away, principally those which I had worn, and which I felt sure mother had purposely caused to be placed separately, thinking me dead, for if such had been the case, it would have been the first death in our family. And, moreover, I had always been looked upon by the others as mother's boy. When I went to the room where, times without number, I had been given such faithful teachings and prayed with so earnestly that I had been the earnest Christian my mother had then entreated me to become. I could have prayed for guidance beside the same dear old chair in which she had so often sat with me. I could not stay here. I felt it was too sacred a place to be entered now, and with tears in my eyes that come again as I write, I reluctantly closed the door and went away. Later I visited what had been my own room, finding it as much as I had left it twenty years before. Many of my old school books were here, but my most precious, though worthless possessions, I had carefully placed elsewhere, and now I took them, dust-laden, from their places of concealment. First a complicated contrivance that when finished was to have solved the problem of perpetual motion. Then a piece of windmill so arranged as to make a noise when an operation sufficient to scare the crows from the cornfield. Going further, I came to some small boxes containing almost everything from a tooth, the first I remember of having extracted, to a small bunch of very tenderly worded notes in a picture of my little twelve-year-old sweetheart. These experiences were repeated next day when I drove to the old farm my grandfather had owned during his lifetime. Here mother had lived as a child, a girl, and a young woman, and accompanying me she no doubt saw many things as dear to her. I too had lived here for a time, and could not leave the place until I had found my marks denoting my height at various times, the first of which was less than three feet. I also explored the yards and barns. Here many changes had taken place. Even my initials had been deeply cut in one of the large elm trees that grow so slowly had become obliterated. This touched me deeply, seeming so much in keeping with what had in reality occurred to the name itself, and feeling that I must have one unchanging remembrance. I went to a huge boulder upon a hill nearby having to cross the brook with much difficulty that in earlier years had offered no impediment to the progress of my unclad feet. Reaching the rock I raised my voice, uttering the same words I had used as a child, and listened for the echoing answer. It did not come. It, too, was dead, owing no doubt to the woods upon the surrounding hills having disappeared meantime. Returning, I found my brother had come in to answer my request that he should visit me. He was accompanied by several sturdy boys whom I had never seen, and in whose faces I could see my brother and myself of years ago. 
But when, in conversation, they spoke to and of their father as Arthur, his given name, I could but wonder if he thought of what would have been our portion had we ever addressed our parents in like manner. The day before I came away, father told of me what disposition he had made, when he thought of me dead, of the portion of his property that would have belonged to me if I had lived, and told me that he would rearrange it. This I begged him not to do, and a good occasion, having thus been brought about, I had him bring from his trunk of private papers the several promissory notes that he had guaranteed for me years previous, and later had paid. And after adding the interest, I insisted upon his taking the money so represented. The next day, after a leave-taking nearly as pathetic and hard to bear as my meeting had been, I left them. I have seen neither of them since, nor do I ever expect to do so. Each prison mail delivery I receive with trembling hands, expecting it to be an announcement of their death, caused by this great sorrow and shame so cruelly forced upon them. End of section 10